Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean Old Lion Media presents The History of Being Black. What up, though? Welcome to another episode of the History of Being Black podcast. I am Jay Hall. Hello to you. Good morning, good afternoon, or good night, whatever time you are listening. And today, I'm joined by a personal friend, but the title, I have to give kudos to every title that she has earned. Podcast host, author of not one, but two books that we're going to get into, the founder of her own company, which we're going to get into, and um, she has a title that I'm going to dig deep into because I struggle with even saying that title out loud, but diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist. We're going to get into all of that conversation, but she is also my dearest friend, Amber Cabral. Hello to you. Hey, how are you? So let me ask the, the appropriate question. What should I call you on this podcast? Because we've been friends a long time, so I don't know which name the people are getting. So I want to make sure I call you by the name you want the people to know. Jay Hall is fine. It is totally fine. Okay, Jay Hall. Jay Hall. Jay Hall is fine. Jay Hall is totally fine. And it's so good that you asked that question because it goes into what you do for a living, but who you always have been. And I've always felt like the perfect career is the one that matches your personality and who you already are. Um, people will ask me like, kind of like how I got into this, or I'm like this because I do media. And I'm like, no, I always wanted to dig deeper behind the lens. I always wanted to go further and things of that nature. And as long as I've known you, you've always had an eye for things that people were either not noticing or were too afraid to actually speak of. So to see that you have these titles now behind your name, I'm just like, yeah, it makes sense to me. I don't know if the if the world might think that you might have started doing this, but for me, I feel like you've been doing this since '97. But that's just that's just how I feel about the whole situation. It does feel really natural. Um, I've told several people I do get hit up a lot from people who are like, "Oh, how do I start my career in DEI?" And I'm like, "Um, this is kind of who I was, so it kind of just happened to me." So I think you're right. I think that like if you follow your passion, your calling and all of those things, you kind of end up in the right place, you know, doing the thing that people would be like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, that's what they do for work. So, <laughs> so I can agree with that. When, what would you say or can you recall the first time you heard the word diversity and what was your thoughts in it? The first time you heard the word. Wow. The first time. So I don't know if I remember the first time I heard the word, but I remember the first time I heard it at work. And I was working at Blue Cross. I was, well, Blue Care Network specifically, which is the HMO arm of Blue Cross in Michigan. So Blue Care Network of Michigan. And um, they were having some conversation about how the top floor of the building and all the leadership that sat on that floor were all Caucasian. There was nobody else. There were a couple of admins, um, but they largely did not necessarily sit on that floor. They would be on the floor supporting their leader, but they didn't necessarily sit on that floor. 
And so that was the first time I heard the word, even though I probably had exposure to what it meant before that. So like it was, I, I, I could say I noticed that, you know, there was, there were some things that could have been done a little better. <laughs> and I didn't necessarily call it that. And then, you know, this terminology was introduced and shortly thereafter, there was a focus and a commitment to diversity at the organization. This is before we were diversity and inclusion, because, you know, we like all the words and the acronyms now. But before that, when it was just talked about as diversity, um, the first place I remember hearing it was was Blue Care Network of Michigan, which is like wild because that's like 20 years ago. <laughs> it's like really seriously, like late 90s, early 2000s, <laughs> like when this is happening. So when I say you've always had a special eye, my first memory was you and I in class, in high school rather, and I, I can't even remember what the class was about because I think I was supposed to be paying attention. I'm pretty sure I was. It was it was a book class, and we were discussing Alice in Wonderland. And as we're talking, I just remember hearing this voice behind me say, "Hey, yo, yo, this book is about a guy who's in love with a 12 year old." And <laughs> it's like just off top, like, yo, anybody want to talk about that? And I remember the teacher at that time feeling you can see it in his body language like he felt like now he had to tell us the whole story besides yeah. telling us the basic story on on the surface he was like well you know he tried to cover up by saying i was going to get to that but that was the most important part of the story i'm like wait a minute because all of us have came from a generation of watching it on disney and yeah. so now we're getting more deeper in that so you know we're both from back home both from detroit describe if you can for yourself Having that eye that I noticed, is that something that, am I the first person to tell you, which I doubt that I am, that eye for you coming up in your upbringing, what did that do for you? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, as long as I can remember, I have always kind of gotten the feedback, sometimes in a grateful way and sometimes in a, that's annoying way, that I catch things like that. So whether it is, hmm, I wonder why you wouldn't make eye contact with my mother when you were talking to her, but when we were here and it was my mother and her boyfriend, you would make eye contact with him. So I would notice things like that. I would notice um, when people would try to baby talk me because they perceived me to be very young or when people would try to speak to me as though I couldn't understand a thing, like when I would be in like the car repair shop, because you know, it's Detroit and we keep our cars a long time. So, you know, when my car needed repair and I would need to take it in and I would notice when people would talk to me differently. And I also would deliberately try to position myself to get the result that I wanted. I would try to position myself to get the opportunity I wanted, the conversation I wanted, the resources I wanted. And so, no, it's not a thing that I, you know, I, I haven't heard. I've heard it a lot in a lot, a lot of different ways from a lot of people who didn't necessarily know what that was, which is honestly why my second book ended up coming out because it was at the behest of a friend, you know, kind of like, listen, I noticed that you noticed this and you know exactly what to say. But that is a that is a part of just my identity. Like I have always been a fan of like, let's call the thing a thing. Let's talk about it for real. 
And if we can do that, then we can have a meaningful enough conversation that will make the impacts that need to be made to influence how we go forward effectively. What I think happens in a lot of spaces is exactly what you said. Folks are uncomfortable saying a thing or nervous to say it or don't know what to say. And so really important things go unaddressed instead of very deliberate and intentional. No, here's how we address it. And I am a fan of the latter. So I will create that. And I think I've been a person who was kind of just put on this earth to do that. So yes, I've been doing it for a long time. Um, So you're not the first person to notice it at all. It is definitely a thing I get. I get it in relationships. Um, You know, people I've dated have even been like, yeah, do you know that you notice all of the things that are not necessarily fair or equitable or unjust? And I'm like, yes. And I'd like for you to notice them too. (laughs) And so it is a huge part of my personality because I just, and I can tell you exactly where it came from. I just really believe that what is for me, I should get it. I should get it. And I should have the same amount of opportunity to get that thing as anyone else. And I'm going to tell this short little story because someone asked me recently, well, how did you end up end up realizing that this was important to you? And it's so random, but this is the most random truth of how I ended up doing this work. When I was in second grade, nope, not second grade, first grade. When I was in first grade, I was in a spelling bee. There was myself and another girl who was the smartest in the school. I was the second smartest, okay? So we're in elementary school, but we were the smartest in the school. So she always was the first. I was always the second in everything we did. This one year I decided I am going to be first at the spelling bee. I'm going to know all the words. Spelling bee comes, when I tell you, it felt like we were spelling being all day, okay? Like we're spelling bee, like we've, we've done every, half the dictionary is what it felt like. We get to a point where the teacher literally says like, okay, both of you clearly know all the words. So we're just going to go ahead and call it. And what they did was they gave her first place and they gave me second. And they did that because, you know, in school, there's only one first place trophy. Well, not, you know, in in the 2000s, but at this time, it's only one first place trophy. There's only one second place. And they did it because she was used to being first and they were used to me being second. And I was like, that's never going to happen to me again. I am never, ever, ever going to have the experience that you give me what you think I deserve instead of what I actually earned. Because if anything, we should have both been first place, right? And so that changed, honestly, the way I approached fairness as a whole. And then over the years, we encountered words like diversity and equity and, you know, things like that. But like, this started for me in first grade over a spelling bee. You know, I try to tell people who grew up in especially East Coast towns how in Detroit, the the gray area was very small. It was definitely just black and white. You know, yeah. it was it was just black and white. It was us and it was them. That's just what it was growing up there. And as you know, that's what you see. So a lot of things we encounter quite early, depending on what your background is. So, for example, if you're someone that only stayed in the pocket of your neighborhood, there's a chance you may not, as a black person, encounter any kind of racism because Detroit as a hub yeah. is a black is a black city, black town, black mayor, all of that, right? But the moment you step across what the world now knows is eight mile and you start going further out, it becomes a different story. And the experience is such a 180. But we're all kind of have this preparation that our parents were giving us to be prepared for that. You get this second place, 
when clearly you're you're matching, you're even, and you know as as, as a second grader, as a, you're like, yo, this ain't right. This is it's not right. This is, this is not right. This is not right. It's not right. Right. This is not right. Yeah. How do you take that from that early experience? How does that affect you post high school, like going into college? Like, how does that form into choosing a major or choosing like what your career is going to be? Did you have this? Did that awareness carry you in that? I don't know if it carried me in that, but what it did do, maybe. So my undergraduate degree is in psychology with a minor in sociology. Um, and then I have a graduate degree in organizational leadership and management. What I thought about when I was choosing my degree programs is I liked understanding how people think. So in a way, you know, it was connected to that. But the way it showed up in my experience through schooling was really more I didn't have a problem challenging it. You've seen this. <laughs> like I would challenge the teacher in a moment. I would, I would push back on a grade. I would, and you know, they threatened me with it, calling my mother, and I would be like, "Well, call her," because <laughs> she would tell me that I should be speaking up. You know, and so, you know, I was, I, I was very lucky in that one. I did grow up in the city of Detroit, and to your point, it is very easy to grow up seeing being well represented. I was a well represented black girl. You know, like there were lots of black girls around me. The most the thing I got teased about the most is the fact that I'm light. You know, and it was like, but nobody was confused about whether I was black or not, you know, and what that meant. And so I felt very comfortable speaking up and challenging and pushing back. And I started to have the opportunities to figure out how to be strategic about it and how to make sure that I was going to get what I wanted out of the conversations and not a single human on this planet scares me because of that. And it was encouraged by my mother, like even like doctor's visits. You know, I can remember being at the doctor's office and the doctor saying to my mother, oh, you know, this is what's going on. And these are the shots we gave and blah, 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 blah. And they'd say, do you understand? Do you have any questions? And she would turn to me and say, do you have any questions? Like, this is you, right? And like, I, I think the combination of just being in a city that being safe in my identity was invited and having the type of parenting that was like, you are a participant in your life. And then also um, having the experience of what was essentially inequity. They were just like, oh, well, you used to be in second, you'll be second. You know, like those that combined to get me to the place where I cared about human behavior. I cared about how people operated. And so in a way, I guess it did influence my decision to choose psychology and then ultimately adding sociology as a minor because I realized the importance of just, it's not just the psychological part, it is the social part. It's the way we are with each other. And so once I got that, I was like, oh, I need to study that too. And so, you know, that I added that. And then I added organizational leadership because the thing I would hear the most, and you can probably attest to this, is I hate my job. <laughs> I hate my job. Growing up, all our parents hated their jobs. You know, they were like, they have friends at work, but like they hated their job. And I was like, I don't want to hate my job. So like, how do we change the experience of like work? And so while I didn't know it was going to be what it is today, I knew I wanted to work, but I didn't want to hate my job. So I picked majors that felt like they would help me be good at helping to influence how people experience work, including myself. Yo, that is a testament. I repeat a lot that I grew up watching people hate their jobs. 
like hate and respectfully even hate their marriages, even though they might have stayed married for 30 some years. Like, and there were a lot of adults that were directly or indirectly telling us, hey, yo, you got a chance to do what you want to do. <laughs> like, go ahead and do what you want to do. But for what I know. And don't you, do that. And that, and that was the other thing. And don't yeah. do this. <laughs> right. Don't, so, don't yeah. do this. Right. Yeah. But what I know of you is that earlier in your young adult life, choosing the entrepreneur role was not something that you were thinking about. You were you were pretty much like, OK, I'm going to find me a job that I'm not going to hate. But I'm going to work this job. I'm going to get this check. I'm going to go home. The Amber that I knew was a very much so I want to leave everything when I hit the clock and go home and have my own thing going on. So you go and you had several jobs, but you know, the big one is Walmart. How does someone who goes to work for a company that we all know, right? Some hate, some love, and then to where you are now. Describe that experience. Yeah, so wild story about Walmart. Um, I am a proud Walmart associate. I tell people that even today, I am no longer a person who works at Walmart, but I will forever be a proud Walmart associate. Walmart raised me in a corporate sense, not, you know, who I am as a person, but who I became as a leader and the kinds of experiences and opportunities that I had there to grow. That is not to say everything was easy, fair or equitable. It was not. But that company gave me a lot of training ground. Um, It was it was unreasonably hard in some ways. But the thing about Walmart that's super interesting is I mentioned I worked at Blue Care Network of Michigan, which is a union shop. You know, you being from Detroit, you know that any organization that does business with the autos has to also be unionized. So Blue Care Network of Michigan was a union job. So I worked and lived in a union and then ultimately got promoted and was not in the union, but still had to work with employees that were in the union. So I understood the relationship and I value unions and I understand them. And I mean, geez. Detroit. How do you not have a relationship with like unions, right? And I just, I just want to, like, I just want to come in and say the unions are so strong back home. I know people who would deny that promotion because they want to stay in union. Like that's a real thing. Absolutely. They, they. Absolutely. I know people who have turned down promotions, but but continue. I just had to throw that out there for outsiders. Yes, it's a real thing. Like we are, we, you know, we are about the union life. You know, in Michigan, it's a huge part of like just just the entire career field there, and so. For me to get an opportunity to work at Walmart, which is the biggest company in the history of the world today, still, okay, has been Fortune 1 for the last 10 years. I, you know, I hesitated, you know, because they're not union friendly, you know, that that, that is not an organization that believes in unions. So it was a, a clash of my own morals to a degree to, to get to the point of saying, like, I'm willing to work at this place and I, you know, I want to see what it's like to grow in this way. So like, you know, that alone is shocking. But the way it came about is honestly, I became friends with a, a, a girl just kind of through life, navigating friends of friends. She lived in Arkansas. She worked at Walmart. She grew up with, you know, exposure to Walmart as most people in Arkansas would. And she ended up with a job on her team and was like, I would love for you to come work here. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> like, that's not even an option. Um, a, I'm not living in Arkansas. B, do you know who Walmart is and like their history around unions? And no, thank you. But I was living in Georgia at the time and I was working in an organization that I really, really did not love. I did not love my job. And so a few months goes by, she circles back and she says, well, what if I offer you this opportunity and you could be remote? And I was like, hmm, that's a little different. 
So I decided to go through the interview process. I ultimately ended up accepting the opportunity. And here's the thing, you know, I learned the same way I think you learn when you work for a unionized organization that there is a lot of power and necessity in unionizing. On the other side, I understood the opposite. Like, oh, I get why this is an issue. I understand the resistance. Like, and not just from, you know, the really tough things that we say about each other. It's almost like, you know, the 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 GOP and the Democrat relationship where it's like you hear all the bad stuff. But there are some legitimate reasons on both sides why there's resistance. And I really valued that that experience taught me to value that there is always something on the other side that's worth listening to. Whether you believe it or not, you know, wherever you decide you're going to land yourself, there's always something worth listening to on the other side. Because I definitely had some experiences working at Walmart that made me go, oh, if we were a union, can you imagine how this would have unfolded? You know, and I could see, you know, the, the reasons why the company didn't necessarily want that. So I ended up there because I knew somebody who thought I would be a good fit for a role. My first role at Walmart was um, I ran mentoring. <laughs> I ran the, uh, the global mentoring program for Walmart. So my responsibility was to figure out how do we get mentorship um, to all 2.2 million associates globally. So it's not necessarily a requirement, but something that was really important um, to the leadership at the company was, you know, how do we mentor and make sure that we're transferring knowledge? And so my job was to make sure that that was passed down. And I loved it. I loved it. It was painful and hard and difficult. And there were lots of, you know, days where I was frustrated. But in terms of like pressure testing my skill set, fantastic experience. How do we start our own company? I mean, that's a pretty secure job, most people would say, you know, Walmart. I mean, although growing up back home, we didn't technically grow up with a Walmart until much later. But how do you go from, you know, the biggest company in the world to Cabral Company? I'll tell you, it would not be a Cabral Co. if there was not a Walmart. If I hadn't had Walmart experience, I could not do what I do today. Um, which is why I also tell people I'm a proud Walmart associate even today. Um, yeah, you know, I, I stayed at Walmart for six-ish years, a little more than that. I, <laughs> my job was changing. So there were, you know, the restructures, the big, the big folks like the restructure. We're, we're in a season of that now. We're hearing all these companies restructuring. So layoffs happen and all that. Um, a lot of times layoffs happen and you can land yourself into another role. I was in a position when they were going to restructure my role. I was responsible at that time for um, diversity strategy globally. And my role was going to have to change in a way that I was not a fan of. And so I made it really clear, hey, if there are layoffs coming, I would like the opportunity to negotiate my way out. I was living in Arkansas. I was not a fan. <laughs> um and I was ready to go. And so um, I was also interviewing. I was interviewing with lots of companies, lots of companies that are familiar to us, Facebook, Google, you know, Amazon, like I was interviewing. And so I figured, oh, I mean, I'm at the biggest company in the history of the world. I can find another job. I did not know I was starting my own company. I left Walmart uh, after deciding to decline a, a couple of offers to stay in some other roles that didn't feel like a good fit for me. I took my severance. And I decided to figure out where I was going to go in terms of finding another job. On my journey to interviewing, I was like, you know, through interviewing, I moved in with my godparents. I was like, okay, I'm, I moved down to Dallas, which is five hours from Bentonville, Arkansas. I moved down to Dallas. 
I moved into their theater room. I put all my stuff in storage because I didn't want to get an apartment because what if I get a job and it's in Silicon Valley? You know, <laughs> like I didn't want to like have to do all that moving. So I put everything in storage. I moved in with them and I would get so excited and I would go downstairs and tell my guy, dad, like, this is my you know job that I think is right for me. It's at Fox and this is what it's doing. And I'm, you know, this is how much I think it's going to pay. And I'm, you know, I'm going to have my panel interview tomorrow and, you know, and he would sit so patiently and listen to me. And then he would say, is that what you want? And every single time I would say, well, I want to not be sleeping on your floor. <laughs> like I want a job, you know, I want to be able to like earn income. And um, he just kind of kept doing that. And there was a, a moment, I will never forget this. I was in the middle of an interview with Google. I asked the question. I did not, you know, feel like the answer to the question felt like it aligned with what I was looking for in a role. So I very politely bowed out of the conversation mid-interview. I'm not the right person. This sounds like a fantastic opportunity, not for me. And after I got off of that call, I was like, I think I can do this on my own. I'd had a few people tap me and ask me for advice. I'd had a few people tap me and ask me if I found another role. I'd had a few people even ask me to take care of some things in their organizations, like, oh, let me just pay you to do this event or whatever. I did a ton of really big events at Walmart. And here's the thing, Walmart's so big, if you can do anything there, everywhere else is smaller. <laughs> so it's easier, you know? And so it's like a lot of that experience translated really well. And I was able to speak to that, being able to do things at scale, you know, you can, you know, a lot easier shrink down. And so, um, but yeah, I got off that Google interview and I was like, I, 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 I don't think this is it. I went down, I told my guy, hey, just got this interview with Google. I explained to him what happened. And I said, I think I'm going to try to do it myself. And he said the same thing he had always said. Is that what you want? I said, I think so. He said, you are at a time where you can have whatever you want. You are safe. You are cared for. Your bills are paid. You have like literally a window right now where you can choose what you want, do that. And I started telling myself every day when I woke up in the morning, okay, you can have whatever you want. What do you want? And doing the labor of figuring out what I wanted. And then the next thing I knew, I had landed a contract that fall. So the interview with Google probably was in June. By, let's say, September, October, I landed my first contract that is still a client today. Um, about two months after that, I landed my second contract. And with those two contracts, I had my Walmart salary. I told myself, okay, if I can double my Walmart salary in the next year, then I am going to never go back. And I more than doubled my Walmart salary. And so I was like, okay, <laughs> we have a company now. And that's how it happened. Um, not what I expected, not what I thought was going to go, you know, go on at all. But like, definitely, I'm grateful. I don't think it could have happened any other way. Because it was to your point, it was not my plan. So let's describe that for a second. So you get a call to to do a contract gig, right? So you get this call. What do you do? I mean, you you walk in there. I mean, listen, I, on the surface, no disrespect, but I, if I walk into a job and I see nothing but white people, I'm like, you need to hire more black people, <laughs> like. How do you get someone to cut you a check for telling them something that seems so obvious to, yeah. to me? You know, how does that happen? 
Great question. So it doesn't exactly work that way. So the way it goes is, you know, there is some strategy behind it, you know, so it turns out that that psychology and sociology background pays off. Um, I had also built quite a name for myself in terms of like culture transformation and like the things we need to think about, about, um, you know, how we engage with each other to be equitable and the ways that we um, impact how we experience work. Like I don't talk a lot about this, but how people experience work is really, really high on my, you know, like personal motivations for why I do the work that I do. And so it's what, what it was, was even though it feels really obvious to just kind of roll in and say a thing, what people really need is for you to not just say you need to hire more black people. They need, how do I do that? Where, what am I saying wrong? What about my process? is blocking Black folks from even being willing to apply because that's the thing. You know, I've read job descriptions myself and been like, oh no, I'm not going to work. <laughs> you know, but it's that cultural nuance that like we're picking up on like all this little coded language that tells me you are going to micromanage me in a way that I am not going to be okay with or whatever. And so companies don't see that. It's their normal. And I see it. And I see it very clearly and super easily. So a lot of it is that it's just the experience of being able to kind of like sniff out those, you know, those tactics and those tools and like what actual shifts you can make. And and here's the other thing, if we're just speaking about, because obviously diversity is lots of other things besides just being black, but like blackness is definitely a big part of it. I don't always have to even open with blackness. Like I often open with, what do you think you're doing well? Where do you think you have an opportunity to improve? And folks will tell me, I don't see enough representation. We're not doing really well that relates to disabled folks. You know, we do, or they'll do the, well, you know, we have two women. We've got one person that's a member of the disabled community. Oh, we also have a person who's a member of the LGBTQ community. Like, and I ask them, do you notice that you can count those people? And like literally the moment happens in just like discussions like that. So I've gotten really good at just like holding people accountable by just kind of holding the mirror up. Like, do you see this? <laughs> like I see it. Um, and so if I see it and now you see it, what do you think the people who are working here see? What do you think the people who are thinking about working here see? What are you going to do that's different that'll make someone want to work here? Because here's part of the reason you don't have Black people or disabled people or whoever is because when they're reading through your job descriptions and they're looking at your website and they're checking out things, they're like, I don't know. That doesn't quite feel right. The other reason is that the people that are doing the interviewing and the assessments are looking at them like, I don't know if you'll fit here. <laughs> you know? So it's like there's work that has to be done on both sides. And so I love having the opportunity to to do that. And I think a lot of my experience at Walmart created, you know, the uh, the skill set to be able to communicate. Hey, do you know this is broken? Can we think about a better way to approach? Here are the benefits of approaching it differently. And so that skill set combined with just like, you know, my background in like education totally made it so that I can do what I do today. And people do call me and ask me things like, how do I know what I should be looking for? Um, because I, I'm i really good at that. I'm not going to lie to you. There was a time that if you would have said that to me, I would have called BS on it, right? But I had a personal experience when I worked in Indiana. And I was working at a 
they wanted to start a hip hop station. And after they hired me, I was their first hire. Everybody else after that was white. Everybody. The entire building was white. Um, it was the whitest place I have ever been in in my life. It was just white, 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 like literally. And so not only was I, it was, it, it was, I mean, it felt very, once they hired me, they were good. And then the general manager, I remember catching him on the elevator and I just wanted to have a conversation. And I was like, Hey, you know, I'm not suggesting we hire like a flavor Flav, but you know, it's this is new and we're it, we we keep hiring whites like you know I'm just that's all I'm seeing I'm like is there a way that we could just be a little bit more open or whatever to that and good guy but he seemed very shocked and what I can understand is that those who are not minority who are not black who are not whatever really can go their entire life without having to check in on that at all versus with yeah. me it's impossible for me to not know who Elvis Presley is. It is literally impossible for me to not know who the Beatles are, right? But you can find people who do not know who Whitney Houston is. Like, I mean, it seems remarkable. It's it's almost fascinating. It's like, yo, but these people also are running Fortune 500 companies. Like, they take that to that. How do you, on a personal level, not, like, take it personal, like, get frustrated when it's something like that? When you're, you're when you say to them, okay, what do you think you're doing well? And they're like, oh, well, we have two people from LG and, and your company's like 500 plus. <laughs> how do you not get, how do you as Amber not, like, how do you ma- maintain your chill? Because none of it's about me, you know? And I just recognize that like, most of my friends are black. <laughs> you know, like most of my friends are black. Most of the people who are in my life who can come to my home and hang out are black people. And so, like, I'm guilty of it in my own bubble, too. Now, the difference is I don't have the power and influence that most white folks got. So we need a little bit more equity on that side. And so in order for that to happen, you know, there has to be a little bit of intermingling of the identities. I need you to have some trans folks. I need you to have some, you know, some some tall people, some short people, some light people, some dark people. I need you to have some people to speak different languages. I need all the things. Because much like that spelling bee, I know I want the opportunity and I want to be treated fairly. I want to have access, right? And I don't want anyone to have the feeling that they're being robbed of that. So, you know, it is it is easy for me to not personalize because I understand how you got there. I have a, a little version of that myself. It's called my friend group. Now, because I believe in walking the talk, I am not a person who is without white friends or gay friends or, you know, tall friends or short friends or <laughs> friends who are disabled. Like, I have all of those people that are a part of my life that, you know, um, you know, are welcome to come and go from my home. But, like, the majority of the people in my world are people who are Black because just the cultural nuance, the connectivity, the depth, the richness that feels familiar makes that happen. And so I have to be deliberate at times about connecting with people and creating opportunities to connect. And that takes labor. So I can see how it happens. Is it still broken? Yes. Is it still inequitable? Absolutely. Is that impacting our experience of power and resource? Completely. And that is why I work against it. But it's I don't I don't feel the need to personalize. Now that is not to say 
I do not personalize some of the behaviors that take place when the room is all white. That is not to say I do not personalize some of the conversations that happen when, you know, there is no one in the room who is visibly disabled, right? And so like I those things I do take to heart and I do make a point to um the way we teach at my company is here is how you navigate shared spaces. And when we speak of shared spaces, we're talking about work, schools, libraries, grocery stores, places you're going to be with people you don't get to pick and choose. When you're in your house, in your shower, you can stay and do and be and believe whatever you would like. But everywhere else that you are, where you are sharing space with people, there has to be some kind of code that we adhere to. And so we haven't done a great job necessarily as a, as a society or the, and definitely not as a global society of defining that. But I try to play my part in resourcing organizations because, again, remember, my, my biggest thing is folks should not hate their jobs. That is, we spend way too much time at work. And so in that sense, it makes it, I feel like I'm making an impact. And so I can push past some of the things that can feel really difficult. Now, the other thing is I know the data. So I know that Black folks are 13% of the population. I know, you know, like when I was living in Bentonville, that like the Marshallese population was higher than the Black population at one point, right? And so like, I, I have enough, I like the data. And because I like the data, I know most people struggle with what to do with all those numbers and how they actually have an impact and are meaningful. But what I do know is I also understand that part of the reason, for example, that many of us, see progression in conversations around LGBTQ folks and LGBTQ identity is because a lot of people know a lot of folks who are members of those folks, right? A lot of us know those people. And here's the thing, the data is skewed because LGBTQ folks have been hiding it, right? It's an aspect of your identity you can tuck away. I cannot let you know that I'm gay or lesbian or bi or trans. I cannot tell you. But a lot of folks know people and a lot of folks know people who have been hiding because if you just kind of just take a cursory guess, it's gotta be something like, I don't know, somewhere like 40 or 50% of the population falls into one of those letters at some point or another throughout their lives, right? But like when you're talking about black folks, that's like 13%. You might not see black people depending on where you grew up. You might only see black people on television and that's today. And so when I think about that, I understand that it might be harder for you to conceptualize what it looks like to support, to show up, to think about creating a space that is equitable for those folks. Do I think it's right? No. Is it broken? Absolutely. Does it result in lots of unintentional, oppressive behavior? Yeah. But I also understand the data. So it makes it easier for me not to personalize. In 2020, you wrote your first book, Allies and Advocates, Creating an Inclusive and Equitable Culture. Mm -hmm. But also in 2020, we were faced with the plague. Yes. It was COVID, and we all witnessed the murder of George Floyd. After that, you start seeing companies just slapping Black Lives Matter everywhere. I mean, my experience before then, politicians and even leaders didn't want to necessarily all get on board with Black Lives Matter. You know, it was kind of what I got white friends, too, and Asian friends. So, you know, all lives matter. But when it came, when we all saw the murder of George Floyd, it became more definitive. Oh, something you can stand behind. Now, you have this book. It's 2020. We're going through. We, we are wrapping towels around our head. Clearly, you were writing this book beforehand. So can you describe 
what set the steps for you saying, okay, I'm going to start writing this book for this. And what was your experience when all of these things were in our face and happening? So newsflash, I totally did not plan to write. I did not write this book beforehand. I wrote Allies and Advocates in 13 days. People think that is insane. And it is. Do not ever in your life write a book in 13 days. I will never write another book in 13 days. But here is why I could write it in 13 days. I am a facilitator at heart. I know how to create content. I know how to drive conversations. I know how to create activities and experiences that are going to tickle at the thing that you're having a hard time talking about. And we're going to pull it out. I'm really, really good at that. And so I, I had developed enough content and courses and programming that when George Floyd happened, one of my clients called me and asked me to put together a presentation around allyship within like a week. I wrote that presentation. That presentation became the foundation for the book. I wrote the book legit <laughs> a month later. Um, so it, it wasn't beforehand. It was literally on time. But I want to say this to what you just said. Sometimes when you follow what your skill set is and you and you lean into where you are the most impactful, sometimes your preparation meets the opportunity. And that's what happened to me. I did not, I was not looking for a book deal. I have always wanted to be an author. You know that about me. I've always been a writer. It's always been something that means a lot to me. I kept the blog for many years, but I didn't plan. I did. I wasn't thinking about a book. I was thinking about, oh shoot, eighty-five percent of my contracts have canceled because we are now living under a global plague, and oh my gosh, everyone is now in their homes during said global plague, watching the replay of this man being murdered by a white police officer like that experience was the wildest time ever and a woman I, I decided to teach my allies and advocates course public facing I typically only work in organizations you cannot have me come to your friend group right like I'm not a you know one-off type situation um I didn't I, I did a public facing opportunity I charged 100 bucks for it lots of people paid it um, this woman signed up and paid it. And before the session was over, she sent me a note on my Instagram account and said, hey, I think you should write a book. Can you contact me? Have you ever thought about writing? And that was how it happened. I was prepared and opportunity tumbled into my path. Um, I'm grateful for that. But it was it was it was definitely not a pre-planning <laughs> preparation situation at all. What did you see? working though with corporations the ones i know you said a lot of them had you know decided to stop doing business in that moment but for what we saw on the outside we saw a lot of pandering it, it looked like a lot of pandering you know a lot of companies being on board um serena williams husband stepped down and was like well you know i need to put a black person in charge i mean i i struggle with the fact that it takes depth to move a white mountain an inch like it takes a lot of black depth you're right to do that you know, You're right. But what were you seeing with your company on that side? What changes were you seeing? And if I can ask also as a plus, were you still consulting like, yo, that ain't the move? Or was there some encouragement? So there's a couple of things I think that are really important. And so I'll go back a little bit to the ethos that we teach from. First, a lot of people say 
you know, the work of DEI is changing hearts and minds. I agree and don't. I am concerned about changing behavior. I don't care what you believe. <laughs> I, I am unconcerned about what exists in your container in terms of what you decide that, you know, is the right thing. What I care most about is how you behave. I care about how you speak to me. I care about if I am considered equitably. I care about if I get the right opportunities. I care about your behavior, how you are actually engaging on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't care what you believe. You can stand in your shower and yell the N-words at the top of your lungs every morning. I am uninvested in any of that. I do not care, okay? What I care about, though, is when you get into these four walls and said company that has made an, a commitment to equity or inclusion or diversifying talent, that you are doing that because that's your job, okay? So that is more the approach that I take. That said, there are sometimes occasions where you have a moment where people really mean it. So I don't want to diminish that that exists. There are folks that are legitimately out here saying, whoa, this is unfair, it's inequitable, and we need to change it. We need to center Black voices. We need to make a point to elevate our you know, trans women. We need to do these things because, oh my gosh, the oppression and discrimination is entirely too palpable for us to continue on as though there is some degree of equity happening here. There are those folks, but there are a lot of folks who A, don't understand, B, are uninterested in understanding, C, how do I stay out of trouble, D, oh, we need to talk about that now, can I get some talking points? And you know what? I'm going to give them to you. Because if I get you to say it, all I have to do after that is get the folks around you to hold you accountable. I'll give you a simple example. I got a, call, a phone call from a friend this morning. I was on you know, the flight. You probably see I'm in a hotel room right now. So I was on a flight this morning. I got a text message from her that said, oh my gosh, I had a conversation at this event last night that was so offensive. And I said, okay, I got a few minutes. I'll give you a call. Called her up. She said, you know, I just feel like the people that are in the positions of power don't get it, especially these white folks. And I said, well, what happened? So she tells me about a conversation she had with a white woman who is in a very powerful role at a very, very, very big brand that many of us spend lots of money at. Okay. Many of us black folks spend lots of money at. And Shea Butter. This, I'm, go ahead. No, don't, don't bother me. Go ahead. It's totally fine. It's totally fine. <laughs> Not quite Shea Butter. Think okay. luxury, but I, got you. I won't say who. Okay. So um, conversation. And in this conversation, this person says um, something along the lines of, you know, I just feel like Black people need so much help. And in that moment, my friend was like, <laughs> what? Like, of course, right? And I said, okay, well, what did you say? And she said, I didn't even know what to say. I was so blown away. Like you have been here and around and you've seen 2020 and all of the, you know, changes and the conversations and the learnings. And like, how could you get to the point where you think that it's that people don't know something? And I said, well, here's what you should have said. You know, I know said luxury brand has a commitment to diversity and inclusion and equity. And so 
I agree with you. You know, Black folks do need a lot of help. I'm re really interested in understanding how you've been partnering to help support that. Accountable. You tell me how you're helping because you're supposed to be accountable. And I know, big fancy brand, okay, that you have made a commitment. And I know that you have said that you would and that you are. Can you talk to me about that? And here's the thing, it's happening, it's happening. But what is also the case is that you might just be doing it because the company said so. And I'm okay with that. I just need it to happen, okay? And I'm gonna hold you accountable to also know that it's happening because I'm gonna ask you about it. So now you have to tell me that it's happening. But guess what? You can still believe whatever you'd like. When you're at home and you're in your shower and you're at your dinner table with your family, you can yell and tout and shout and believe and whatever. But when you are in these four walls at this company that's made this commitment, I'd like to know that you can talk about it. I'd like to know that you know how you're showing up to do it. I'd like you to know that folks like me are going to ask you about it. And so you're going to have to be able to explain. That is the work to me. That is the work to me. I am not here to teach people to be completely different humans. If they want to be, I have all the resources for you to do that. What I am going to do, though, is create strategic opportunities for folks to be held accountable to make the change happen. So that wasn't exactly probably what you meant when you asked me, because I don't approach the work the way people approach the work. I want the results. What's the fastest way for us to get to the results? You know, I, I'm, I'm pretty pragmatic in that. I, I do not care where you go home and who you buy your need to. You know, That's I want it. to read. I want I want you to be held. Hold, held I want to hold you accountable for what you say. It was very easy for me growing up. Magic Johnson said he was my role model. Therefore, he was a role model. Charles Barkley told me he was not my role model. Therefore, Charles Barkley was not my role model. That was how I, I, I went through life. So I was never disappointed by one versus the other. That's just how it is in life. What would you say, what's, what's the definition or the difference between an ally and an advocate? How can we spot the difference between the two? Yeah, so um, this is a, another thing that I think folks kind of do a little differently than I typically do. So some people stair-step that. So you kind of have like allies and advocates and like co-conspirator or something will be in this kind of stair-step model. I don't exactly do that. So allyship to me is about the people. So when we're talking about allyship, I am thinking about the way that I, with my privilege, which by the way, we all have some, okay? Just the fact that I'm on here having a conversation with you on, this fantastic free internet is a sign that I have some privilege, okay? And so like, how, how does my privilege show up? What am I uh, doing to extend it to another person? That is allyship. So an example of allyship might be, you know, Jay Hall's trying to apply for a job at a company that I'm very familiar with. And so I reach out to you, Jay Hall, and say, hey, here are a few tips. Here are some things for you to consider before you get into an interview situation. Here are some things that you may want to mention. Um, here are some things to highlight, you know, on your resume. Because I happen to know this company culture and allied behavior for me would be to extend my privilege of knowing that to you. Okay. Now, advocacy is a little different. Advocacy is about the system. Okay. Advocacy is about putting yourself in the position to say, you know, I noticed that we are only hiring white men for this role. What about this process? is happening, that we keep having that happen? Are we even getting Black folks to apply? Are we even getting, you know, Asian folks to apply? Are we getting anybody other than white men to apply? Oh, we're not. What's going on here? 
that we're not even getting the input to even consider other talents, right? It's looking at the system. Advocacy is about that. I want to interrupt the inequity in the process. So allyship is about the person, advocacy is about the system. And so an example of advocacy that kind of aligns with the allyship example that we just used would be, you know, instead of me just saying, I want to just help you, Jay Hall, I might say, you know, in general, we don't really have enough black men in these roles. So how are we positioning ourselves to make sure that we're getting the visibility from that population? Are we putting these, you know, roles in the right job boards? Are we interviewing equitably? Are we positioning ourselves to be able to keep that talent when we get it? Advocacy is about, I want to fix the system. The system isn't working. Both are important. There are times you're going to show up and you're going to be an ally and that is the most you should do and can do and are able to do in that space and that's great and we need it. There are times that you are going to show up as an advocate and that is the thing that you can do and should do and we need that. There are times you're going to be both. So I, I always encourage people to not always see it as a stair step. Um, we're not looking to label you, hey, Amber's an ally. Like you're really, I need you to do the thing, you know, and sometimes the thing is help the person that's trying to get the opportunity. Sometimes it is, ooh, I run this system. And so this isn't working well. I would not have a book if there were not, uh, if it were not for um, a, a woman being an ally for me who had the awareness of, you know, we tend to really mostly publish books for white women. Here's a black woman in front of me that could write a book. Let me see if I can extend the opportunity to her, right? And so like that was her being an ally. Her attempted advocacy is her saying, hey, Amber, I know you know other Black women. Here are some of the areas that I'm interested in creating books for. I don't know that I have access to that network. Can you get me connected so that we can potentially create the opportunity? Now she's trying to fix the system. So sometimes you're both. Sometimes you're one or the other. Yeah, you've been that several times in my life. I mean, I'm sitting here behind this mic being a host of the show for those who don't know. I actually mentioned it on the solo episode. This is the Amber that I told you about that actually got me this job who called me up. It was like, hey, yo, what you doing? <laughs> so she actually practices what she preaches on, on all ends. And, you know, I'm always internally thankful for that because there's been several occasions where you threw something my way and I, I had to be prepared for it, too, because you talked about preparation. And if I wasn't yeah. prepared for it, the opportunity can also, you know, it could have just died. What's been the most challenging thing for you in this field when in terms of racial diversity and trying to get a company to understand that or gender diversity and inclusiveness to try to get a company to understand that. Cause they just gender, hire all black men. It's like, right. About the black women, you know? Right. Gender diversity is easier because we have been talking about gender a long time. Black is always harder. Black is the hardest. Honestly, um, we can talk about almost anything before we can get to black. It's like it's the minute we get to black, there's like, you know, we've got to navigate this really interesting terrain with most organizations. I can talk about women and supporting women and how to do that. And there's a lot of data about the benefits for it. When I start to talk about black, which then automatically means black women, right? Because when they hear women, they don't necessarily hear black women. They just hear women. But like when you add on black, black exacerbates everything. If you are a person who is LGBTQ, if you are a person who is a woman, if you are a person who is young, if you are a person who works in tech, as soon as you add black to it, if you are a person who's disabled, as soon as you add black to it, it exacerbates that condition. And so we have to do a better job of understanding just the power 
of getting organizations to recognize the importance of centering Blackness. There is data that literally says if you center Black students, everybody in the class does better. So like that is, that's, that's, it's hard. It's hard. And it's, it's hard for two reasons. One, again, we're 13% of the population, but we, we you know, I, I personally am of the opinion that we drive the culture. Okay. We, we are the culture creators. We are the ones that you are getting all the slang words and the fun memes and all the snarky things you're seeing on the internet from. We create that. Okay. And so we have a huge, huge, huge impact on society. However, Everybody doesn't necessarily have visible um, access to how that happens, how it's sourced from us, how much we share, how much we give away, how much we are intentionally having um, a say on what it feels like to be not just Black American, but Black globally. And so, you know, while in a global perspective, you know, you start to add in a myriad of different issues, it still is the case that the minute you add Black to something, it exacerbates it. It makes it harder. And so uh, the work that I do, I'm strategic. I fold in all the things. I let you tell me all the stuff you're doing well. And then we got to zoom in on that black part. Okay. Well, look how much better we could be doing. <laughs> right. Um, and I, and I try to make sure that I'm armed with the data to show like, yo, we do have, you know, black female talent for this. We do have, um, you know, black folks who are disabled. We do have black creators that are working in, you know, these various fields. We do have that. And guess what? If we don't, how are we putting ourselves in the position to make sure that our black folks are getting access to the opportunities to be that later? Are we funding programs? Are we giving access? I support a lot of, you know, nonprofits that are, you know, here for black fashion designers. I chair an organization called Brown Girls Do Ballet. I am committed to making sure that we find a way to put color in a little bit of everything, because ultimately um, that is really the most equitable um, impact that we can have, even though it's the smallest group. But that's the thing we always have to remember. If we can impact the smallest group, and it's not all the way across the board, but in a lot of ways that often ends up being Black folks, um, if we can impact that smallest group, we elevate everybody. And so, you know, sometimes figuring out how to do that is the most impactful and sometimes the most cost effective thing that an organization can do to see some change. I just got two more. And I really have one, but I got to ask you just one after saying that. The difficulty of putting black in front of a sentence or in front of a category, do you think, is that the reason we've been hearing so much lately of this? I'm not a black actor or don't just put me in black movies or we're not just a black company. Like I've worked with companies that prefer to state that they're a minority company and they don't want to say black. And I'm like, but everybody's here black. The CEO is black. Everyone's here black. Why don't you want to say black? Like they've asked me to write their front page, you know, the business page. And they're like, well, put minority. I'm like, but everyone's here black. You know, like it's so obvious. Is that the reason why there's so many and us two are trying to escape that? It's not that. Okay. It's not, it's not exactly. So here's what's happening. There is an attempt at equity, but it is still done in isolation. So imagine that I invite you to be here, but I make all the black people sit in the same part of the business. Right? So you're here. And for my numbers, it looks like I am an inclusive organization and I am a diverse, you know, diverse in terms of representation, but everybody works in that department. Okay. Some of that has happened. And so um, it is not useful for, let's say, I'll give an example. Let's say, you know, Kmart, which is not really in business anymore, right? 
um, decides that they are going to be deliberate about pulling in black, you know, product designers and um, making sure that their shelves have representation. And because they want to make sure that people know that, they have a section where they put all the black products. So now you're walking through, you know, the makeup aisle and the black designer stuff isn't there. It is over in the black section. You see how that's a disconnect? So what has started to happen is that highlighting that I am black has started to kind of put me in this position of being what I think organizations think is celebratory, but has ultimately put me where I'm in this mashup of products that don't align with me. If I design jewelry, put me over there where the jewelry people are. If I design, you know, shampoo, put me over where the hair products are. And we've seen that when that happens, you know, products do well, they survive. I mean, look at Melissa Butler, fellow Detroiter. Like she's like the number one black owned product in Target right now, right? Her her beauty brand. So it it is an impactful thing when we do it well. But a lot of folks have gotten away from wanting be, to be identified as Black because they feel like what they end up getting is the charitable purchases, the charitable highlighting, instead of the deliberate, no, my product's good. Put me over there next to Tiffany's, you know, or whatever. And so that's that's a lot of why you started to see that, um, particularly in, you know, the, the worlds of, you know, retail. That's 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 a big part of why that's happening. And and I'm working on it for what it's worth. I am working on it and helping companies to see why that's not OK. Um, but that's why people not trying to shy away from their blackness, but trying to shy away from the idea that I want to be isolated because of it in a way that you think is equitable. OK, I, I, I'll be patient with that. I'll be patient with that because I, I felt a certain type of way, but I, mm -hmm. I'll be patient with it. I'll be patient. Yeah. with it. My 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 last one question. Your latest book, say more about that in other ways to speak up, push back and advocate for yourself and others. Now, <laughs> if you're somebody that's working a regular nine to five as an employee, you're trying to pay your bills, you're, you're trying to just go by, you are that I work here and then I go home or you got this little comfort zone, right? How do you advise for them to advocate or champion for diversity when they might fear it might risk their job? So it depends on the circumstance, but I'm going to say this. One, it is always a choice. You choosing to fight for an equitable experience is always a choice. If you are exhausted, if you feel like you are unsafe, if you don't feel like you have the language, whatever, it's always a choice. You do not have to. You do not owe anyone that. And I encourage people of all identities to exercise their liberty as it relates to the things that they choose to do. So I want to say that first. Second, often we think we can't say something because we are junior in our careers. We are reporting to someone that is not necessarily understanding our identity. We are new to the job. You know, we just joined this company. Um, you know, maybe we don't have, you know, as much influence or relationship as the person that we perhaps would like to address. What Say More About That is intended to do is to arm you with the ability to do what we were talking about earlier in this conversation, and that's hold people accountable. Hmm. Say more about that. Anyone you say that to in a corporate environment is going to run through their brain what they just said. 
And if it was inequitable, they're going to go and they're going to fix it. Or they're going to repeat themselves and they're going to be waiting on a response from you because clearly you didn't understand. And now I've said something else and they're waiting on you to reply, which is an invitation for you to highlight what you heard as inequitable. It is a lot of strategy in having conversations that hold people to the fire for their behavior, for the way that they show up, for what inclusion and equity look like, looks like in their organization. Um, it is a lot of labor. And what Say More About That is intended to do is give you the language to do that without having to feel like you've got to be quiet or feeling like your job title's in the way. And this is not just, you know, by the way, in the workplace. This is also like in your doctor's offices. You know, your doctor's trying to tell you, no, you need to take this drug. And you're like, yeah, that drug makes my, you know, left shoulder itch, <laughs> you know? And you're like, they're like, listen, that's not possible. This drug doesn't make left shoulders itch. And you're saying, but my left shoulder has been itching since I started taking this drug. It even helps you with conversations like that, which, you know, a, converse, a, a sentence like, are you open to considering the possibility that what I'm experiencing is different than what you've seen before? There is not a doctor that's going to say no to that. Right. And if they do, you're likely going to find another. And so it puts you in the position of having some power in the conversation. That's what Say More About That is about. It's helping people understand that you, as long as you are engaging, have the opportunity to have some power in the dialogue and have the opportunity to influence the conversation in a way where you get to feel seen, safe and heard in whatever environment it is that you're having that conversation in. And so I wanted to give people the, the language to be able to do that, whether it's your mama, whether it's your doctor, whether it's your boss. You know, I wanted to make sure people had the power to do that if they so chose. That is that is dope. I like the way you broke it down for the regular everyday person, because a lot of times we don't necessarily know our power. We think we have to gain a certain amount of power in order to advocate for something. And so I wanted you to kind of spill on that because all of us have probably more power than we probably recognize. It's like knowing your rights when you get arrested. I hate to make that comparison, but it's the truth. You yeah. know. You do have the right to remain silent. I know we hear it on TV all the time, but that silence is golden. And so, yeah, understanding that is what's up. Amber, this has been like a full circle moment. I don't even think even our producers probably even recognize this from the conversations that happened in the back of the classroom to have right there. So let me just say personally, you know, this is an honor and a privilege. Privilege, look at that word, an honor and a privilege um, to have you. And I know you've been here before, but I always have been saying to every guest, this is not a closed door. This is a revolving door. Please come back, even if you just want to come for 15 minutes to let us know about this. Because as much as I struggle with diversity, equity, and inclusion myself, because I don't always see it, we need voices, professional voices like you to come and actually talk. Because nowadays, there are way too many people who are just way too many voices out there that don't know what they talk about. And so I always encourage the professionals. And you are the one professional whose voice is out there in the, in the social media. Cause there are other professionals. They'd be like, Oh, I don't really like the social media. I'm like, yo, but we need you because you actually know what you're talking about. You know? So you're actually somebody I don't have to say that to, but please, 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 please come back anytime just to turn our coat to something that we need to be aware of. And um, just want to ask you one last thing. What is it that you got going on and how can we support? Wow. Um, right now I am just navigating the world of, organization budgets and you know layoffs so I don't even know that I have anything particularly special going on there will be a TED talk I don't know when 
I haven't given it yet, but when that happens, I would love to come back and maybe have some conversation about that. It is hint, hint about allyship and privilege. Um, so that might be a good follow-up conversation. But um, if anyone's interested in, you know, either the books or um, the work that I do, you can always just hop out and find me at ambercabral.com. Um, my social media is linked there. Um, so I'm kind of all over the web, but mostly on Instagram. But yeah, go out, grab a book, buy it, give it to somebody. That's probably the best support I can use right now. Yeah, and her Instagram be lit too. It'd be fire. I'll be taking inspiration from it. I just want to let you know. Amber be writing these, uh, you know, her captions be like, so this morning I woke up and I had coffee and then all of a sudden we're talking about racial equality. <laughs> so I just want to let you know, going to her Instagram is informative. It is something, it is entertaining, you know, and it's very personable. And I love the stories that you share. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of History Being Black. My blackness definitely feels elevated. I know our producer's blackness feel elevated. Amber, I hope your blackness has been elevated because you've elevated me as usual. Um, make sure you catch our episode always on Spotify and all the other places like Apple Music that you can actually follow and download our episodes. Make sure you hit us up on our IG at History Being Black Instagram and make sure you follow me and Online Network. You can catch me on all social media platforms at Jayhaw Society. Be blessed, successful, and talk to you soon. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O'Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean O'Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O'Line Media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.